Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast this week. I'm delighted to have you here. So, this week is a really interesting podcast. Devinda Sangera is on the show and she talks about becoming financially free via property within a year of going full time after quitting her job as a trader in a bank, which allowed her to travel the world and attempt to also save the world, which led to some broken bones, which we speak about in the interview. She also raised £320,000, which is a third of a million roughly, again, within her first year of being full-time in property investment, when she didn't really have a track record before. How has she done this? Well, listen to find out. And just a quick one, if you're liking the show, it is free and always will be, no adverts, none of that boring stuff, so please share it, review it on iTunes or on the Facebook page, tell your friends about it, and yeah, give me any feedback. If you know any awesome guests that you think would be really good, please just send me a DM on Facebook. Well, look, without further ado, Devinda Sangera, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Thanks for having me, Ted. No problem. It's kind of strange because this is kind of a live podcast because I don't really know your kind of background in a lot of detail and I don't know a lot about your projects, right? So this is like a networking session for us yeah. on air. So hopefully it goes smoothly. Um, how do we meet? On Facebook? Yeah, social media definitely connected yeah. us. Um, I think one of us just was watching the other on social media and then mm. connected and that's it. Hmm. Awesome. So um, we're actually doing this face to face, which is a nice change, right? Yeah. Welcome to my office. <laughs> yes, it's, a, it's an interesting office. Everyone you'll see on the video, um, Divinda's nice home office. So like for people who don't know you, what were you doing kind of pre-property? What was your career? Yeah. So I was in banking. So I was a trader and I was in banking for five years. I started in New York and then I moved back to London and I spent four years working at HSBC on the trading floor. Um, and left that in February 2017. Wow. And so what were you trading? I sat on the treasury desk. So money markets and FX products. I sat on the desk that sets LIBOR, which is what well, the banks were having scandal scandals about. Um, so interest rate risk and liquidity and managing the Nostra accounts for, for all the Nostra accounts for the bank. Okay. So I have a friend who's a trader. I think he's at a prop firm, so it might be slightly different from yeah. a bank, but he's working hours that are just unholy. Like he's in at 4am, out at like 9, in on the weekends. He has no life. Was it the same for you? No, it- thankfully not. So my working hours were always like uh, market hours. So 7.30 to like, you know, 5.01 was our running joke. Like I'm leaving at 5.01. <laughs> and one person in the team would have to do a late and that meant they had to stay until six o'clock because the Bank of England changed the timings of when they sh- like closed uh, to 6 p.m. And it would either be, you know, one day out of five, I would work till 6.06 <laughs> p.m. So it was a good work-life balance. Um, also, I never needed to take my work outside of the office. And because I was... If, and if I was ill, I couldn't work from home because the fact is I needed access to my trading systems and I needed access to everything that was in the office. So it's not like I could have had access to all the trading platforms and all of the modes of communication that I used to talk to my brokers um, and internally and yeah, from home. Wow. So it doesn't sound like the typical sort of hours and atmosphere that you get from working in a bank, right? So how long were you there for? So I was there for four years. I started in the analytical team and then I moved over to the trading side. 
the thing is, I think there becomes a misconception as well, and it depends on which area of the bank that you work in, because traders genuinely work at market hours, and so when markets close at like four o'clock, then there's an hour of just tidying up and you know reconciling like the the, the balance sheet, and you're out by five o'clock, and that's that's always been the case for front office and for traders. Um, of course, there's like different types of trading at different types of like you know hedge funds or oil mm-hmm. and gas companies, or whether t- individuals work Hong Kong hours or other hours so hmm. I had a good work-life balance so you were you enjoying working there no not at all and hence why <laughs> obviously I only survived five years so with me I guess I knew I wasn't going to be one of those dinosaurs that worked that had been there for like 27 or 32 years I knew I wasn't going to work an extra another year let alone you know be there for a longer period um I I kind of had like this moral dilemma of being in banking because I just couldn't think I I just couldn't think that this is it that this is what I was meant to spend my life my time energy and energy time energy and resources doing um was just spending 2 hours commuting every day to spend you know 10 11 hours behind six computer screens um in essence like just not even creating something just because somebody had created this product in, from the figment of their imagination and yet I had to work it from a computer screen like it, it honestly didn't make sense to me and I always say I worked really really hard to be mediocre at something and I think another thing was I had really amazing uh, managers amazing role models and in in an industry where there's hardly any women um, my managers were these amazing women and that inspired me to a certain extent but when your role models stop becoming your role models that's when it's time to leave okay so you were searching for more meaning right something that was a bit more meaningful than the financial services and institutions right yeah so then what made you look at property because people would also argue it's not a figment of our imagination it's physical but it's also kind of property yeah so I actually didn't leave banking to go into property I um utilize I was like I definitely wanted to get onto the property ladder before I left banking because I wanted to utilize my salary to tap into like the highest mortgage that my broker could get me um and so I bought a property whilst I was still at banking uh in 2016 uh so this was before the extra stamp duty tax had come in uh because it's in London and it's my capital growth strategy so that would have completely wiped me out that extra three percent uh stamp duty but it was before the April 2016 before it came in and um I was just adamant that I was going to create a secondary income, create a passive income, although whatever that meant at the time, just was adamant that I wanted to create a secondary income so I could go do the thing that I was passionate about because I didn't want to just be trapped in this kind of banking world and, you know, earning what I was earning, but then not being able to leave to go do things that I'm passionate about because I've now ended up in a spiral where my out- I have to carry on living this expensive life because my outgoings are X amount. Mm. And so... Can you talk us through the figures of that purchase? Yeah, Top yeah. Level? So, um, so yeah, bought it uh, for purchase price of four hundred and fifty-two thousand. It's in Southwest London, Zone Two. Uh, the mortgage on it uh, is about three hundred thousand. So there was a lot of deposit, a lot of capital that I pumped in. Uh, stamp duty, legals, and broker fees came up to about sixteen thousand. Uh, so my money in was. It's probably going to be awful for like a lot of people to hear. Uh, especially for me now, considering I know all I can do with this money outside of London. But my money in was 171000 You know, you can buy like 
five seven properties for that with cash in like wales or somewhere like mad i know or the northeast. I, I know that now <laughs> i know much. that now but i think also i bought this property um as my potentially my first home that i could live in Fair because enough. it's halfway between like my parents home and halfway between central, central london and a train from like wandsworth takes 13 minutes into waterloo so i thought if i if i ever wanted to be closer to central london this would be like where i lived so i definitely bought with my heart when i bought this okay. property but i bought it because i saw the value it was a two bedroom uh, property and i saw the value that i could instantly put up a stud wall and create the dead dining room space into a third bedroom the the other thing that when i was looking at properties that I was looking at not and this was not from a investing kind of perspective it was more because growing up in an indian family household as you know might know ted yep um <laughs> when mum makes like indian food like this the smell of spices and indian cooking seeps into your like pores your does, nails 100%. your hair your clothes mm-hmm. so i was that smelly little kid running around at school with like the smells of spices and indian food in my clothes so i was adamant that whatever investment property i had the kitchen and the living room were going to be separate none of these like you know new like fashionable kind of like new bills that you see in london where the kitchen and the living room are, are together no 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 whoever my tenants were going to be they were not going to succumb to the <laughs> the bullying I that i did that. i love that i am that indian kid right now believe me i live in Southall, and the whole area is like that so that is that is funny but that but i considering like that's one of the things that mm. i was adamant that i wanted the kitchen living room to separate it worked to my favor because i bought this two-bedroom flat put a stud wall created a third bedroom and the mm. living room always got used as a fourth bedroom ah. because the kitchen was separate so and this was without that foresight very smart decision wow so so you spent a hundred you had 170 grand in the property right yeah. that's that's before i did the refurb <laughs> that's oh. just the purchase okay anyone like out of london is probably thinking what on earth is this property a mansion so no, it's not. <laughs> How much did you then spend on the property for like refurb? So I did the, I, I did the refurb, I was saying two stages. And I say two stages. So before obviously being educated and like, you know, dressing and creating a, a, a product out on the market um, that people are fighting for. It, this property was a probate property. So the children of the woman that passed away uh, were executing the will. Um, so it was old green avocado suite horrible carpets magnolia uh so i went in and i just ripped everything out put in laminate flooring and put in a white bedroom suite so that reef and what i did i recycled all of the furniture (laughs) for my first set of tenants for 18 months and then i did the refurb in so i say in two stages because then when i went back after being property educated i went and put mirrors everywhere and dressed it um i put it on airbnb for a couple of months in between like two tenancies um so then obviously with the dressing and it it is it was really good because it now when i went to go do my big hmos that i'm doing in the midlands i definitely utilize like some of the ideas that i had then from just you know being educated and going to like yeah, property networking events. Absolutely. So then what did it revalue at? Once you got rid of the classic avocado. Yeah, so it... the refurb cost was in two stages. So £16,000 in total, because obviously I did it over 18 months. Mm-hmm. Uh, the GDV, when I had it revalued two years later, so May this year, was half a million, 500000 Refinancing to 75% loan to value meant 
that I raised capital at 2.68% and I was able to pull out 78,000 of the of the original of the original cash that I'd put in. Okay. But this is like my capital growth strategy. So if that's 78,000 I've been able to pull out in 2 years, like I wonder what what it would happen in five years or you know in 10 years time and now that I have an investment in London if I'd known like exactly what we're saying about 170,000 I could have gone to South Wales and bought five or six properties if I had known like then what I know now I wouldn't have used that money to buy the property but it swings and roundabouts because 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 I have that property enabled me to lose leave my job and it also meant that Although the world tells you and everyone in property tells you, oh, don't leave your job, you're going to be unmortgageable. Because I had a £300,000 mortgage and I'm buying properties now for £150,000, lenders are not, I don't see me as risky. I Even see. though my, my when I left banking, my sole property income was from this one property. And so, and of course, like things have changed now, but I, I didn't struggle to get mortgages at all. And I okay. applied for financing, you know, with one self-assessment, uh, which ha- still had my... Uh, property uh, has my banking salary in there so it made it out as if I was I guess this like wow. high-flying trader and I wasn't <laughs> on my self-assessment and, and it just worked timings worked out really well for me I guess and that's interesting because a lot of people do say you know don't quit your job you could become unmortgageable but actually you because you bought this because you didn't have the knowledge which yeah. was a blessing it, in disguise exactly you were then mortgageable and did you just say this one property allowed you to quit your job yeah so from the like passive income that I learned that I earned from it um obviously like, I don't have well I didn't then um didn't have that salary of having like my trader salary but it gave me the comfort that I have this stream of income coming in um and then I can go do the thing that I'm passionate about so I left banking to go save the world I just broke my wrist doing it so before I left <laughs> that's, that's like your book isn't it I went to save the world but I broke my wrist doing it I broke it. my wrist doing it <laughs> So before I left banking, um, after my property was cash flowing and it was tenanted, that's when I started like looking at international development. So I was so adamant that I wanted to work in international development. So working on projects that impact societies that are less able or have less means than we do. Um, so it could mean like water or infrastructure or solar panels or green energy or even like women um and you know providing sanitary towels to women to girls at school so that they don't take five days or seven days out of a a month you know not skipping school um so like just reading up and just doing loads of research um i came across this amazing ngo that are based in they're american but they're based in east africa applied for a job and i got the job interviewed and they wanted invited me to fly out to Tanzania. Nice. So I went to Tanzania in November 2016. Um, and when I was out there, as much as I thought it's amazing what this NGO is doing, I didn't feel like I wanted to spend my time, energy and resources doing it. So essentially they were alleviating, they were helping farmers to alleviate themselves out of poverty by introducing them to modern farming techniques on a very low scale um, that are introduced into the Western world, but just bringing it to Africa where the kind of information hasn't been pitter pattered down. So these are subsidence farmers that farm to keep up their bread keep, right? To keep themselves like alive and their families alive. Um, And the model was amazing. Uh, The vision is amazing, but I just didn't feel like I wanted to do it. So I really wanted to deal with the refugee situation um, or deal with the crisis that the world wasn't dealing with at the moment. Uh, so I paired up with a really small 
grassroots organisation. Uh, I left banking February 28th in 2017 and in March 20th I went to Greece and fed up a small grassroots organisation to be in one of the camps in Thessaloniki and I was aiming to be there for about three to six months but one of the refugees broke my wrist on day two. Ouch. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But I think the important thing is through property and through one deal it allowed you yeah it wasn't bringing in you know you're not buying a Lamborghini with this sort of money but it still allowed you to follow your dreams and still be you know it bought me the time exactly and time is something that it bought me the time to try and figure it out definitely and time is something we're not getting back right so if it can do that for you then I wonder what it can do for other people who are in similar jobs maybe who hate it more um, and who are scared to quit their job or are scared to kind of take that plunge yeah and I know this is London, and you know, most people are probably not going to have a buy to let in London, but you've achieved a lot in one property, right? I think so. I hope so. I, I think so. I've spoken to a lot of property <laughs> investors, and I think, you know, looking at the figures on your screen, so t- tell everyone, how much does it cash flow a month net profit in your pocket? Uh, 1400 Okay. So over a year, that's about, what, 15720 Yeah. So that's... I mean, that's half, the, you know, nearly half the UK average kind of salary, or London yeah. average salary. Yeah, true. So after this deal, that's your kind of capital growth strategy, right? Mm-hmm. What? So actually, let's go back to your education. So you mentioned you did this when you weren't educated necessarily, but you still had the kind of foresight to see the stud, stud walls, which was something separate. Yeah. Sort of where did you get educated and how important has that been to get you to where you are right now? Yeah, so I joined uh, Legacy Training uh, and uh, Stump. So when I broke my wrist, so I came back home after five days, and I was just Googling passive income and watching TEDx talks, and I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and I was YouTubing and Googling, and I I listened to this, and as much as Robert Kiyosaki is amazing, he, he didn't resonate with me because he speaks in a different accent and he's talks with uh, with the American market involved and I read his book and it was it was very American targeted um and I wasn't aware at that point when I'd read it of these training programs in London so when I was YouTubing these TEDx talks I came across a young uh British guy I forget his name but it was Alex and he had some Russian like Polish surname Alex Tessa Pereski or something okay and he I watched his TEDx talk and he was talking in a British accent and he was young and I felt like I related to him like I resonated with it's him more relatable, it was more relatable just because of the demographics of like the age and his and he talked about being at university and ed- and spending an x amount of your time energy um uh, and money and resources to educate yourself on property um and i I recall thinking, wow, he did this whilst he, or whilst he was at university or maybe afterwards. And that's something that, you know, he grew his property portfolio or got himself educated on. And so because because I guess I was YouTubing and, you know, reading these books, the algorithms got me. <laughs> yeah, they retargeted you. Yeah, they got me. So obviously I clicked to one of those links and I went to a property two-hour freebie and I went to the, the three-day and there I was with my broken wrist and toe and I came across Legacy training okay. and signed up and I was like yeah this is what I want to do and this is this is me for the time being this is what I want to do for and is the next step of my life and you know these courses cost anywhere from a grand to sort of maybe five grand I'd say for these introductory courses right so yeah it's it's a fair bit of money 
um, especially to put on a course on education, which you can get elsewhere for less. Arguably, we can debate that, but say you can. Yeah. Um, like, how vital has that investment of time and money been to where you are today? Do you think you would have got here without it? Definitely not. Um, it's it's not necessarily the knowledge that I've acquired. It's the people. It's the networks and the people, and meeting people that are one step ahead of me, one step behind me. They're the ones that I get so much value from, because it's not the ones that are experienced, seasoned investors, twenty five, thirty years in tow, with these massive portfolios. It's the ones that are are climbing up the ladder, like I am, that are getting the heads around Brexit and the impacts of Brexit, Section 24, um, incorporatizing and buying property through a limited company, and how are we gonna mitigate the mortgage interest rate relief as it eases in if properties are bought in you know, personal name. Um, so, and they're, and they're the ones that I've learned so much from, or like what they do when they're JVing, or heads of terms, and okay, what about this investor who's in my investment area what do they do to be marketable or to be one step ahead of the game or to yeah be to yeah be one step ahead of the competition it's funny you said that because that literally perfectly summarizes my podcast okay. so there's a nice little plug there okay um, nice. and it Titch talks <laughs> exactly and it's good because i completely agree with you i learn the most from those people who are like one two three four steps ahead of me um because they're so relatable and close to what I'm doing right now. That's it. With all these conditions, like you said, right? Mm-hmm. So speaking of network, you know, network is your net worth. Everyone always says that yeah. all the time. How, how true is that for you? Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a networking event that I go to regularly and just by association or me getting, being quite, quite friendly with some of the guys that go there and just going there regularly and seeing the same people regularly like twice a month, um, you know, I've ended up getting a cheaper bridging uh, company uh, for my uh, third deal, which was my second HMO, and I saved 7500 just in terms of fees. Wow. And one of them ended up lending me £50,000 and was one of my angel investors. And, you know, and we're all in this community. So I have, on a number of occasions, picked up the phone as I'm driving and asked, so do you want to be my angel investor when I need to like scrounge around for funds because I actually know there's another deal that I want to invest my like time, effort, and energy in, but I need to go digging around raising money from angel investors. Hmm, okay. So £57,000 essentially in total is what you've saved or got from your network so far. No more. I've had, I've got JV invest, I've got JV investors, um, I've got, uh, yeah, joint venture partners as well for my fifth deal, which I met at a networking event um, and I connected with, and then we went for coffee and we both just vibed and we saw our morals and our heart and our vision was in the same place. And yeah, we're working on this one deal together and you know, with the vision to do five or six in the future. Wow. So I'm the development partner, they're the funding partner. I'm the one that's time rich, cash poor. They're the ones that are time poor, cash rich. And are working in their offices in London or running their businesses and I spearhead the property the property game for us. And so there's a lot I wanna ask about that. So how what what do you think it is about you or your approach or or anything that has made you so investable that given that you have a a fairly limited track record in terms of years of experience that these people have just said, 
take my money and give me a return or take my money and just make money um so i guess like everyone says this within property it's finding that win-win finding something that makes the other person feel like they're winning as well so although I'm asking for funds and I'm asking for money. At the end of the day, I'm also providing them with a better interest rate than what they're getting with the banks. And like my due diligence process, I guess you're right that as in I don't, I have very limited experience within property, but I have I have experience within numbers and finance and banking. And if there's one thing I definitely know, it's that and everything else I can find out. Do I know how to put up a stud wall and fit a kitchen? No. Do I care to know? No, I'll pay somebody to do it. But I, as long as I can find somebody that can do that and I can manage the process, that's fine. And all I need to just is always give the comfort to my investors that I know the things that I need to know and everything else I can leverage off other mm. people. So your first deal, Speaking of financing, your first deal was bought with, was it savings from your job, essentially? Yeah, so that was my own money. Um, helped a little bit by, by family, uh, but essentially just leveraged using my um, my salary and, yeah, just savings that I had. Okay. I think most people do their first one with their own money, right? It gives you a bit of a track record. If there's any risk, it's your own money. So how have you been financing your other deals since and we'll talk about your deals in a sec but yeah so my my model is i invest in the midlands uh i turn two bedroom terraced houses into five bed en suites without planning so all under permitted development so under permitted development uh you can put a rear dormer in and you can extend up to three meters and six meters with uh neighborhood consent on the ground floor so we completely reconfigure the house internally Okay. So my builder will rip out the floors, rip out the stairs, and we literally take it back to brick. And you can look up and just see see the the roof and like the. That must be strange, right? It's weird. It's odd, but they're magicians. And so we lower the ceilings and we lower the floors to get two bedroom en suites in the loft space, two bedrooms in the on the middle floor, and then one bedroom on the ground floor. And we still have like a quite large living room lounge area which obviously has to adhere to HMO standards as well so there's there's a quite nice space and yeah and so these are all financed now with some of your money in JVs no all all, uh, angels all angels that I've done uh, these two big rip outs where I turned to two 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 bedroom Hmm. terraced houses into five bed on suites Um, and again it was just selling myself selling the deal Uh, I feel like I do due diligence uh, because it's just my nature um, in terms of like when I want to work with somebody, I want to feel comfortable that I can work with them. So my due diligence process, I feel, has been thorough. And I guess it just, I, I then pass this on to my investors. Um, I'll have like, you know, an, a thorough document which I send out to them that they can read and they can see. And every time I've had a question, I'll answer it in my document that goes out to my next investor. And, you know, like, and my, the thing is that even though I can say in total, I've raised 320,000 from angel investors. In how, at what time period? Uh, so since February this year was my, when my first angel. And you've raised that much? Yeah. Three, I've, I've, wow. I've had like large angels. So like one angel lent me 146,000. So. That's a lot for your first sort of yearish in property and not yeah. having help. Like that's, that's incredible. 
Yeah, so I've full-time in property since January this year. So. And the second month from then on, you've just been raising money. It's I mean, just, wow. Well, I had my office accepted in December 2017, and then I went away for three weeks to Sri Lanka and India. And then it was like, right, January, do some work. <laughs> Reply back to emails to my sister and raise some funds because I have zero way of funding this. Um, so, yeah, so friends and family, people that I know, kids that I went to university with, uh, other property investors, and just, you know, showing them my deals and you know them feeling as well that they want to help me out and mm. like when I have had a bit of a liquidity timing issue I've called them up and 50 grand's been in my bank account within like four days so and that's trust right there's a lot of trust there because not everyone's just going to give you 50 grand yeah. some people won't give you 50 quid these days without some level of trust and insurance right yeah and so I guess with your diligence and the level that you go through and I'm just looking again what's on your screen I think that level of detail is something that I think a lot of investors maybe don't go into, but is so necessary because if someone's parting with their hard-earned cash, you need to show them that you are going to be as diligent on the property as you are with everything, right? Yeah. It's about personal brand and how you come across to people, right? So we've mentioned your HMOs in Coventry briefly. Yeah. Talk me through one of them in terms of like figures, type of tenants and things like that. Yeah, so... Um... The, well, the one that I completed on first, purchase price was 150000 Um Mortgage was 75%, loan to value. So all in to purchase it with the 25% deposit, stamp duty, which was the extra stamp duty, and legals broker survey fees was 46000 to purchase the property. And then the refurb cost, including drawings and planning, was a whopping 100000 So your refurb... Yeah. Cost nearly as much as the house. Two thirds, exactly. Two thirds of the house. And I've got I've got the breakdown of the Wow. Of like my builder's um yeah, of his schedule of works and his quote. And one of them, the the second one, the one that I'm actually going through, he had to charge me twenty percent VAT. <sighs> and it, there was an instance where my accountant and his accountant were going back and forth and trying to get it down to five percent and his accountant won in the end. But for this one, he had to charge me 20% VAT, but the but the second HMO that I did, so my third property project, I got 5% VAT on it. Nice. So essentially it brought my, it brought my refurb cost uh, down by quite a bit. So that one was 100,000 and uh, for the 150,000 pound purchase price and the one, the property that I bought on the same road at 125,000, that refurb cost ended up being like 86,000 because we got 5% VAT on it. And this, obviously this refurb is, as you said, is literally stripping it to a shell yeah. and completely putting everything back in, right? Yeah, yeah. And so let's go back to the first one. So 150 mm-hmm. purchase, um, 100K spent on refurb. Yeah. What did it What did it actually revalue at? Yeah, so it got downvalued. Um, I went into this market after speaking, after meeting my builder and creating a relationship with him. Uh, and he told me that you know his five beds were getting valued at three hundred thousand. Bear in mind this was in August two thousand seventeen when I met him. Um, and now when I've refinanced, my refinance got down valued from two hundred seventy five thousand. My broker put in to two hundred sixty thousand. However, okay. the product that we're going for, we're remortgaging with an eighty percent loan to value. So eighty percent loan to value on two hundred sixty thousand is two hundred and eight thousand that I'll pull out from the remortgage. Whereas if I had seventy five percent of two hundred and seventy five thousand, 
that would have been nearly £2,000 less. So although I've had a down value, we've gone for a different product. But of course, this isn't a good thing. I, I de- In an ideal situation, I want the highest value. Of course. Right? Not... But it's just we've made it work with the products with the amount that I'm going to pull out because I'm actually going to pull out more with, by going for a high, high low, loan to value. And because this lender does do 80% loan to values. But of course, we're, we're going back and my broker is appealing that as well since the, va- the third party valuer that valued it in the comparables had two comparables, sold comparables or five beds in my area that were sold for 273 and 279,000. So it doesn't make any sense. And so my broker's gone back and is appealing with the lender but of course they have to do the whole process wow and i guess that's the power of having a good broker who'll do that for you right i guess there's a lot who would say oh tough just deal with it right no so- definitely my broker's amazing i recommended him to tons of people in the property <laughs> network um where he's reduces his fees for me <laughs> there was a t- there was a time this um this summer where I really wanted to buy a property and I couldn't raise the funds fast enough. So I just, I passed it on. I actually ended up doing venturing on with it instead, but I ended up spending obviously money on the, on the valuation and paying the broker fee. And my broker was like, I'll refund that to you because you've sent so much business my way. Wow. So it was just the beauty of working with like people that you get along with or when someone does work for you. And you know, I had written that off. There was no, for me, I was like, yeah, I'm not getting that back. He's like, no, no, no. <laughs> that'll be or that will be used towards your next mortgage. Wow! So the power deal. of good relationships. Definitely. And then, so how much money was left in this deal? Yeah. So um, after repaying the old mortgage, um, I can pull out ninety six thousand after refinancing. So in this deal, I leave about fifty thousand pound in the deal. It sounds like a lot, and it is. It is. Uh, but I'm cash flowing five hundred pounds or the gross rental income, I should say, the, is £500 minimum per room. So five bedrooms, that's 2500 a month, which is 30 grand gross rental income a year. Uh, although on this one, I actually earned 31000 but let's just keep the numbers simple. So 30000 um, minus my mortgage at 3.6%, 3.64%, minus my 5% management fee, although I managed to negotiate down to 2.5%, but let's just keep it clean. <laughs> and I've, you know, I haven't had the HMO long enough to know my monthly expense, but I factored in 15%. Um, and my bills aren't hitting that, you know, aren't hitting anywhere near 15%, to be honest, just because I've, you know, always gone and like, try to get the best deal on the market so cash flowing 1500 a month which is 17,600 annually so my net ROI that I leave and uh, my net ROI is 35% uh, with a 12% yield wow. on, on, on 260,000 so that's my ROI after refinancing and pulling out the money so wow. with the 50,000 that I leave in the, in the property so your London one net flows net cash flows how much again? Pretty much the same, to be honest. And in this, you've only left in 50 grand. Whereas so the, with, other, the other one I left in 170. So you could have had three of these. Yeah, exactly. And that's the power of getting the right area. Yeah. But it's not the wrong area, but no. it depends what your strategy is, right? Definitely. And so what does your put portfolio look like now? You've got one in London, two in Coventry? Yeah, so I've got one by Tillet, two of these big HMOs in the Midlands. I'm JVing on two, one of them, which will be same model, two bed into five bed en suites. Uh, one will be completed next month. The other one will be completed in January. Um, I'm always on the lookout of a good deal. I've had an offer accepted on Friday. Congratulations. Um, thank you. Thank you. But yeah, I might pass it on considering my JV partner has just come back to me and said, we'll wait until the refinancing comes out and we've got the money sitting in the account and that the 
other joint venture project that we're doing together is fully tenanted before we go shopping again. Uh, so I might pass it on to another investor, which I have done before for a small little fee. Um, so, and then I've got a land deal potentially on the table, which I have no idea how I stumbled across it, but there we go, I have. So you've gone from a vanilla buy to let to two pretty hefty HMOs and now to land. Yeah. That's, I like that trajectory. That's a real hockey stick kind of upwards yeah, move, right? Aim high, why not, right? Just <laughs> yeah, of course. Take a massive What's, swing. Have big goals. What's the point of, of going small, right? Definitely. And, 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 and this land is in the Midlands, I assume, as well, right? Uh, it's in Stoke on Trent. Lovely place. I've never been there. Yeah, lovely. <laughs> um, I, I, it is an interesting I'll place. I'll be going off in a few weeks to check well, out this land. Let me know what you think. Okay, I'll <laughs> um, Okay, that's cool. So, so you have really, really progressed quickly. And what is your, like, strategy in the sense that I'm guessing, obviously, passive income to allow you to do other things and save the world without breaking your other wrist yeah. Um, yeah, is exactly. kind of the goal. But is there a strategy in property or is it like, you know what, I just want a good deal, whatever whatever it is, I'll, I'll deal with it. You know, I like when I sat and I wrote my goals this at the beginning of this year, I had, you know, I want to have six HMOs under my belt. And then, of course, the market changes and there's certain things that come up and you, I don't want all my eggs in one basket. So as much as you know, it's it's easy to get offers accepted, especially when you build relationships with the agents. But it's actually having that long term foresight. Like, okay, is this gonna be a good investment in five years or ten years down the line, especially if this is a buy to hold strategy? And how do I keep on top of the market and keep on top of changes that are happening? Do I now change my HMO strategy to have HMOs with bed sits and cooking facilities in each bed sit, although it's a lower rental income, but you know, when I did my spare room ad, I had couples coming to me more rather than single tenants. It still took 20 days and like, you know, you can laugh at me, but still like it for, for the, I think the standard of my product still took 20 days for my properties to be tenanted from when the first move, first ad went up to when the last tenant came in and or signed the contract. And so what can I do to be more competitive? Is it creating bed sits? Is it studios? Is it flats? where's the market and I talk to lettings agents and they and they say you know give us one bed two bed flats they go instantly but it's the five bed is it the five beds is it the six beds are those the ones that are struggling is it the four bed en suites so it's it's just always keeping on top of the market and I've created these five bed en suite HMOs but how long will they will they last especially with all the bills that are going on in Coventry and in the city centre um so again it's just remaining competitive um so going back to your question like what was my strategy I guess I'd never say no to a you know, a good deal. I'm a numbers girl, so numbers definitely uh, is my forte. But also having different land, like deals land on my lap, like this land deal, um, if it works and the numbers make sense and I can pair up with more seasoned investors to do it, then fair enough. And, you know, did I would I have thought in January this year that I would have been doing potentially a land deal? No. But here it is. And, like, do I want to do it? I'm terrified absolutely terrified i have no idea what i'm doing so if there's anyone out there that wants to help me out with a land deal feel free to get in touch um but yeah hmm. you know it might be my biggest thing that i do and it could be it could be i mean i think the deals you've worked on so far are pretty life-changing you may not see them as it because you've done them and they might be kind of straightforward to you but for me to look at as someone who's x many steps behind you i know that the sort of passive income from your hms from the buy to lets 
is a pretty good amount and is enough for some people to live the rest of their lives on happily, right? But a land deal like that, especially looking at the GDVs you were saying, one deal could literally be the lottery. Yeah. Uh, you know, potentially, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, anyone who's who knows land, get in touch. I know Sunny and Shabazz and Hardy, but I've mentioned already, you've been on the show. I'll put you in touch with them because they are masters of land. Okay. So Sounds hopefully they'll good. be able to help you out. And um, so your builder sounds awesome he and is trustworthy. Absolutely amazing. I sent him to go view properties for me from London when I couldn't get up on a day when the only day the agent was showing around and tenants. And so I sent him and he viewed the property and he told me to put an offer a in. A builder worked for free for you to go view a property. Well, but this is the thing, like you talk about free, of course I hadn't paid him a penny, yeah, yeah, but yeah. It, it was the nature of relationship building. You know, one of the first things he said to me, he went, Davinda, you work with me once, I promise you, you're going to work with me five, six times. And the fact that he said that made me know that he's in it for the long term. So I, I listened to this podcast recently um and it talks about like this this guy was an angel investor um i forget his name i'll have to like tell you later um but he talks about having a long-term view and how he wants to work with people that have that long-term vision and if people are short-sighted like he doesn't want to work with them and he it really resonated with me because he summarized in like 30 seconds what i'd probably been feeling my entire life so when i fed got fed up with banking it's because i couldn't see see it in the long term when i've got fed up of any relationship um it's always been i can't see it long term or going in anywhere in the future so let's cut our losses and just cut it now whether it's a friend or whatever or somebody that's like toxic to your to your environment and when you continue to feel the negativity from being around that person or that thing whether it's a job or an individual or an environment then you just cut your losses and go on and move on and so when people think short-sighted and they're in it for the short-term gain and they just think about me 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 you know that, those are the ones I want to stay away from. But when a builder goes and does something for me for free, he's not doing it for free. He's seeing the, he's seeing the beauty and the nature of a long-term relationship because he, he'll know that potentially I will work with him for, you know, for a few more years. And actually he gets me that deal. I'll use him as my builder. <laughs> of course. <laughs> on and, the deal. And how did you find a builder this amazing? Because finding builders is something people struggle with builders all the time. Builders are gold dust. Builders are gold dust. Um... I just found him on the street. <laughs> I think so you need to elaborate on this. I, so I saw his building. So confident me, you know, I talk to everyone. I'm one of those annoying people that talk to people on the tube. Oh, I know. Okay. I'll see somebody from like 10 years ago and I'll recognize them. And I'll like, they'll be sleeping on the tube. I'm like, hi, hi, hi. We went to university together. I'm that annoying person. <laughs> oh, God. So- I'm, I'm the one who's like, oh, please hope she hasn't seen me. Why? That's going to be me when I see you next time on the tube or in London. And I'll, I'll run away and I'm like, hi, how is it going? So I saw this building van outside this property that was clearly being refurbed. On my first ever day in my investment area when I was like looking at properties. And I just went in, I was 10, 15 minutes early for my viewing. I went in and I just took a look around. And I was like, hi, show me what you're doing what is this where are the walls wow. what is this and just you know like baby Davinda well, I say baby I'm 30 but I always get told I look like I'm 20 yeah, yeah, yeah. power of good I, moisturizing I can, cream I can vouch for everyone yep <laughs> power of good moisturizing cream but yeah so baby Davinda 
obviously just being like, oh, what is this? What is that? What's going to be here? En suite, show me. Um, so yeah, I just walked around and they were like, just take, obviously did their nut in because they, didn't, they were like, get out, just take a picture of that number that's on the van and call our, our main guy and our boss and speak to him and he's the one that you want to speak to and that was it. Wow. That was it. That's, that's incredible because I know experienced property developers who, you know, on occasion have to replace their builders or are still not finding the right builder. So that's... I bear in I do, I am using a different builder for my next, my two JV partner, JV projects. And I do know a third builder. I know quite a few rip out builders because again, I see them on the street and I just walk in and I'm like, hello, what are you doing? <laughs> hello. Just... <laughs> hello. I love that. So we should all take a, a, a page from your book and just annoy builders anytime they're on site charm is the word oh that's yeah that's what i was looking for sure (laughs) walk in and just okay i like that you know i don't know if me walking in would have the same effect i think they'd be like mate who are you get out why are you here I don't know, try it. I'd have to try it and be all chirpy and like in their face. Oh, that's a stud wall. Oh, what's that? What is I'm that? I'm going to try this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try it and I'm going to Instagram live it. What are you doing? And yeah, how can I do what's, it? What's that? Well? Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. And then, you know, what What are your thoughts on the kind of Coventry market? Now, I know you're, you're looking ahead to the future and analysing the market, but actually my question is twofold. Why did you choose Coventry as an area? Because yeah. choosing an area especially for Londoners, is, is, is tricky. Yeah. Um, and what are your thoughts on it, you know, in the next five years? It's a very broad question. Focus your thoughts on the area in whichever aspect you want. Okay, so why Coventry? I went to other northern cities first. I went to Liverpool. I uh, went to Derby, which is in the Midlands. Uh, Birmingham, Newcastle, and... I just got a good feeling in Coventry. It's probably because it was a really sunny, sunny day. <laughs> I'm joking. I joke. No, I just got a good feeling. Um, I like that it's accessible to where I live in West London. I do day trips and I only do day trips. And I just pack it in. So tomorrow I'm actually off to Coventry for the second valuation for my HMO. And, and obviously on your day trip, you're going to be listening to Ted Talks on repeat, <clears throat> obviously. obviously. Obviously, I will yeah, be. Sorry, carry on. Of course. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll wake up at five and I'll be on the road for 5.30 because the value will be coming at eight. So I want to make sure that I'm there in good time and I'm not running around like a headless chicken. So, and I'll do a day trip. And the thing about Coventry, which I love, is they only work from 9.30 to 5.30, which is not like London. Because when I was viewing properties, and I viewed 50 properties before I put my one offer in for my capital growth strategy, I would go, I'd work my 10 hours at the investment bank, and I would go and view properties for two hours with an, with an agent. And they'd be, he'd be working to like eight, nine o'clock, you know? And that doesn't happen in Coventry, 5.30. So I, I only have that window to make sure I see my agents, to see my builders, because my builders stop working at 4.45 as well. Honestly, life not. in the Midlands is chill. Life it? in the Midlands Compared is chill. Wow, honestly, and I love it. It caters to my lifestyle. I'm like, oh yes, that's it. Be productive with the time that you do mm-hmm. work. But if you're going to work, just work efficiently. You know, it's all about working efficiently, not working harder. So Coventry, I kind of got also steered there um, by a seasoned investor. Um, I was told about. I mean, you know, there's a few of the, these places like. Derby, Birmingham, Coventry, Leicester, um, Corby, Kettering. I just haven't got there yet. Okay. And I've just been in Coventry for the past year and, yeah, enjoying the networks and the people that I'm meeting. Hmm. And then, you know, you come across as quite a cheerful, happy 
and sort of confident person. I mean, has there been any times in property on your kind of journey experiences where like, you know, the something hit the fan and yeah. it was kind of like, why am I doing this? Yeah, I had a, a liquidity timing issue in the summer and and I think I, I was talking to other seasoned investors, you know, I've had a lot of like feedback where they say that this happened to them and it's, it's normal and probably it's going to happen to you. But the idea of not being able to pay my bills absolutely freaked me out and it's just not the way that I do business and I wouldn't have wanted to go into something without the idea that I couldn't fund it or have the means and ability to fund it um and I just didn't like the idea of like so much having so much debt uh which then started freaking me out and potentially ruining a relationship with my builder because I couldn't pay the bills um was an awful like situation to be in because my whole thing my whole I guess ethos is and the two things that I know that I think I know well are numbers and people you know and it's relationships and like it's the beauty and the power of relationships that I I truly think that I've been able to raise 320,000 from angel investors or property investors or why I have JV partners that want to work with me um and if I ruin that relationship that to me is you know like worse than anything because I've literally just burnt a bridge that I could potentially never like build mm. back. So yeah, there have been times um, because of that liquidity timing issue, it made me rethink. There's a, there's a school of thought. Um, I won't plug any names. Well, can I? Go for it. So Kevin Green, um, I went to his three day and his is very his ethos is very different to the way that Rich Dad Poor Dad and the whole like property world is like leverage, leverage, leverage from the banks. Um, but he he's very like pay down your debt and you know an asset that you own should be debt free by year ten, so it shouldn't have a mortgage, and it shouldn't have any form of lending, and you buy three you keep two, you tr- you sell one. So I was like, okay, I'm on my third one now. Should I sell it and then pay down the debt on the others? Or at least have a pool of a pool of capital, which gives me the confidence to go again. And then just talking about it with my accountants and then my investors and my builder, who is against his religion to sell, you know, and he says, it's against my religion to sell, don't. Um, don't sell and just making like having that long-term view rather than making a rash decision on feelings that I felt in the summer when I was going through an in a liquid moment I just didn't want to put I just didn't want to make rash decisions on some on a feeling um so then I had to like literally you know take a step back so I went to the market and my property didn't go on the open market but I got a private offer of 296,000. I actually got the call from the agent today. So it's not making it easy for me. And how much profit would that be? It would be a pre-tax profit of 46,000. Pretty good, pretty good. Yeah, but then I'm re- gross rental income of 31. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? It's it's if you want to use leverage and use a property as a vehicle of investment, or you want to use it as an owned asset. And I mm. think there's like arguments for Kevin's view and the leverage view because... You know, if you're on an interest-only mortgage, you're never technically going to have any... Well, you're not going to have pay the 75% of capital in it at any point in your life, potentially. So or, it's just a vehicle. In or a actually, like, I mean, this is probably going into another strategy and I guess other investors can explain better. But actually, if when you pay in capital and interest, you end up paying more long-term. 
So if you always stay on an interest only, when you get to that point where you don't have an early repayment charge, if you then repay a chunk amount, you've then decreased the amount of your loan, so you pay interest on your decreasing amount. Whereas when you take out a 75% loan to value mortgage on a half a million pound property, you're paying interest on the 75% of the half a million. Does that make sense? Rather than yeah. having a decreasing amount. So actually there are arguments that even though you have an interest only mortgage, you might pay down the debt at a certain point in the future in chunks because then your interest rate is now on the reduced amount, not on your initial capital. I, I see that, yeah, that's interesting. And I guess that, you know, that decision comes down to people's risk appetite as well, right? Some people are happy to be leveraged to their eyeballs yeah. because whatever. But as soon as the banks want to call in their loans, then it's a bit of an issue, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's interesting. There's a whole podcast we can do on that, actually, yeah. on, on kind of risk appetite. Definitely. Dorinda, this brings us to the end of the podcast. Can you believe it? Gosh. Is there anything else you want to say? No. Before we get into the quickfire round. Oh, gosh. Nearly at ah. the end. <laughs> I think we could talk for a long time because I think we started the podcast like 40 minutes late. So there's uh-huh. definitely so much more that we could talk about. I think you should come back on the show in, Invite me back in a year's time. In I'll a talk, year's I'll time. I'll tell you about the land deal. <laughs> land deals, it'll be by that time, land right? Deals. I'm sure you'll be you know, Skyping me from a yacht in Dubai or somewhere when yeah, you. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> well, not Dubai, because I hate Dubai. Fair enough. Of plastic, man made, no. <laughs> That's exactly what I've heard about it. So let's go into the quick fire round. So, Devinda, what are the biggest three mistakes that you have made in property? Um, I was definitely stingy on furniture. The whole saying of buy cheap, buy twice, that definitely happened to me. Um, Attempting to change strategy at the last minute. So I tried to get professional tenants uh, at the last minute when I was going for a student strategy. It ended up, it meant meant that I lost four student tenants. Ouch. Um, My third one, I um, didn't notice a subletting clause in my tenancy uh, agreement, which meant that I couldn't remortgage my property and I had to instruct a lawyer uh, to get rid of the management company. I wasn't expecting that and one. And 78,000 was, the refinancing was like flying by string. That's pretty serious. That was very serious. Um, for like not noticing something on a contract. That's, I didn't expect that as a mistake. Wow. Yeah. So for everyone, read contracts. Read contracts. In, in Do detail. Due diligence. Yeah. Pay a lawyer a hundred pound if you're not sure, just to go through it. Yeah. Send it to your friend's family and just get them to eyeball it. Damn, that could have been costly. Yeah. Wow. Okay, cool. Moving on. Um, so you, like me, work from home um, in, in a home office. So, And a lot of people probably will be once they quit their job and go kind of full-time property. Yeah. What are your tips for working sort of from home and, and I guess also alone? Get out of the house. Honestly, scheduling coffees, lunches, networking events... The amount of times that I have ended up just being a hermit and one task leads to another and you, you get into, oh, I'll do it. I'll go to the gym. I'll do that. No, um, just get out of the house and scheduling coffees, lunches. Leverage, leverage, leverage. You don't have to do everything yourself. Um, sometimes I get really drudged down by the admin, but there's that notion as well saying that work on the high paying tasks and, you know, outsource like the... The rubbish ones but on the other side as well leverage of of stuff that you don't know so the big stuff and then thirdly outsource the rubbish okay cool and um what are your top three goals for the future 
Uh, so travel more. So I've been to 42 countries. Wow. Yeah. Um, I spent four months of last year out of the country, just traveling and doing Everest Base Camp and going to Europe. Um, so I definitely want to travel more. I want to climb the highest mountain in every continent. I've done Kilimanjaro and Australia, if Australia counts. Um, I want to spend like half of the or half of the year abroad, uh, just experiencing cultures, eating really good food, and just like discovering the world. Um, make impact. I want to make impact on a larger scale to communities that are less fortunate than me. And I guess this goes back to like my international development kind of notion of and the reason why I wanted to essentially move out to Tanzania and work with refugees in Greece. Um, learn languages. I love being able to speak three languages, uh, one of them which is a learnt language which I learnt when I was 22, and the fact that I can connect with people uh, because I speak the language, or people can connect with me because they speak my language. And I mean, I'm fluent in Punjabi, and when I went to Greece, I wasn't expecting there to be Pakistani refugees, and they were, and they told me their stories just because they found a friend that they could speak to in their mother tongue. Wow. Wow. Forming connections all over the world. I love it. Cool. Well, look, Dave, thank you so much for your time. I think this has been a jam-packed podcast and I know we could talk for way more. Um, and you definitely have to come back um, because I think you shared a lot of insightful content and tips with people who are on any stage of their property journey, right? And mm. I think what, you know, to conclude is that you are being allowed to experience your passions travel do exactly what you want to do and not have to work nine to five and be um and have a boss and be under someone else's control and this is all through property right if you like this podcast connect with tej on facebook linkedin and youtube for more great content